Hello, Fellowship. Thank you for participating in the elder nomination process. After a deliberate season of prayer and discussion, our elders have three new candidates for the office of elder to present to you today. Michael Collier, Brett Rings, and Brian Denman. If you don't already know these gentlemen, we would like for you to meet them. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Michael Collier. My wife, Mandy, and I have been part of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas for over 20 years, serving mainly as leaders in the community and small group ministries. Mandy and I have been married for 21 years. Our daughter, Michaela, is 16 years old, and we have a son, Matthias, who will be 14 very soon. One thing that has me jazzed up right now is the growing number of people wanting to worship together again. The pandemic was hard for everyone, but I didn't realize how much I had taken for granted what worshiping together corporately meant to my life. It has been rejuvenating to sing, pray, and listen to the preaching of the word with more and more people each weekend. I'm excited about the future here at Fellowship, and I'm honored to be nominated as a candidate to serve as one of your elders. Thank you. Hi, Fellowship. My name is Brett Rings, and my wife, Leanne, and I have been married for 34 years. We originally came to Fellowship 21 years ago because of the small groups. Leanne and I strongly believe in the benefits of small groups, where you live life with one another in community. In addition to leading small groups, we are also involved in children's ministry, greeting, and I help coach a group of men in Springdale. I'm both humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate for elder here at Fellowship. Thank you. Hey Fellowship, my name is Brian Dittman. My wife Megan and I have been involved at Fellowship Bible Church for the past 13 years. It has been a joy to lead community groups, Financial Peace University, Discover Fellowship, as well as serve in the children's ministry over the years. Megan and I have been married for 15 years and have a seven-year-old son named Sage, a four-year-old daughter named Hattie Pearl, and a two-month-old son named Crew. I love that Fellowship is a gospel-centered church that strives for our name to be nowhere and our fingerprints to be everywhere. I am humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate to serve as one of your elders. Thank you. Thank you, Brett, Michael, and Brian for your willingness to participate in the elder nomination process and be considered a candidate for the office of elder. It is a tremendous responsibility to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. And your willingness to be considered a candidate speaks highly of your character, integrity, commitment to Christ, and service in our church family. Now, if you are a member of fellowship, we have one more request of you. If for some biblical reason, you feel you cannot follow a particular candidate's leadership, please email me, mirapier at fellowshipnwa.org, stating your biblical objection, and do so no later than Monday, March 6th. I will call you personally and we can discuss your objection, which must have merit based on biblical elder qualifications. We require that all elders have 100% affirmation from our body. If you have no objection, we assume that you are affirming the candidates that the elders have set forth from the pool of nominees that you provided. Please pray for these new candidates as well as our current elders. We are grateful to each of you who participated in the nomination process. And with your affirmation, we will add Michael Collier, Brett Rings, and Brian Denman to our board this fall. And finally, we would like to thank Steve Lampkin, Stephen Weber, Rod Easley, and Dick Nervick for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your appreciation. Blessings to each of you. Well, good morning. I'm glad y'all are here. Y'all glad to be here? 
Yeah, it's a good, good morning. Thanks a ton for being here to worship with us. My name is Aaron Parks, and I get to serve in our family ministry with our birth to 18-year-olds, and it's just an honor to get to see what God is doing around fellowship right now. And we're really excited about uh, these new elders coming in to serve our church. Two of them, Michael and Brian, actually worship here at Fellowship Fayetteville. So we're just really excited to see what God's going to do through them as they um, step onto our elder board and, and lead our church. Now, here's everybody's favorite part of the service. It's just such a fun part of the service right here. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask y'all to pretend like we're just doing like the cha-cha slide. Y'all know that? But we're only going to do one part of it, and it's just going to be to the left, to the left. So if you could, it'd really be great if y'all could just kind of scoot to the left. If there's a seat on your left, just fill that in. And what that does is that helps as people are coming in, um, helps them have a seat. See, isn't this so fun? This is the gospel right here. This is the gospel. Thanks a ton. I really do appreciate it. A ton. This is awesome. See? That's right. That's right. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, when you do this, you can just look up here and go, this is the way. This is the way. You just scoot to the left at fellowship. This is the way. That's what we do. That's what we do. Well, thanks a ton for being here. And I've got a couple of things I want to tell you all about. And one of those is a retreat for families that we have coming up on Memorial Day weekend. We've got a thing called Family Camp, and it's for three nights. It's the Friday to Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. And it's just an opportunity for anybody with at least one kid in kindergarten through sixth grade to join us for a weekend retreat and worship together, have fun together, build community with other families here at Fellowship. And so it's a really awesome opportunity to do that. And so the registration starts March 1st. And the space is pretty limited, um, and so there's uh, just a, a limited number of families that can go. Um, and we're partnering with New Heights Church to go, so it's like more Fayetteville families getting to worship and, and enjoy the weekend together. So anyway, you can look on our website uh, to or scan that QR code, I guess, and sign up for Family Camp. But that starts March 1st. Oh, yeah, so the slide says March 26th. Don't show up March 26th. It's actually May 26th through the 28th, and so it's Memorial Day weekend. So if you show up then, there might be a cool retreat going on at New Life Ranch, but we won't be there. Um, so you're like, wow, this is a, a, I don't know what would be there that weekend. I don't know. So don't show up then, please, please. It's May. Um, good call, good call. All right. There are about 100,000 people that live in Fayetteville on this surrounding area. And as a church, what we hope is we hope to see God change the heart and the soul of Northwest Arkansas and the heart and soul of Fayetteville in this area. And one of the ways that we feel like we can be prepped to do that is to understand what the gospel is and how we can share the good news with those around us. And so this is an awesome opportunity. This class, it starts here in about two weeks. It's Discover Good News. It'll help you understand what the gospel is, how you can share that around you. And so you can sign up for that, scan that QR code. It's a three-week workshop that um, just helps you understand the gospel and how you can um, bring that to those around you. Today, we get to hear from a, a story that many of us in this room might find very familiar. So as we begin worship today, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to each of our hearts using this very familiar story to many of us, but that God would show us something about who he is and how he loves us that we maybe haven't seen before. So will y'all pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your love for us and thank you that we can come here and we can joyfully worship. We can learn from you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to our hearts. Help us to understand you more. And so, Father, as you use a very familiar story that many of us have heard since we've been kids, may you use that to speak to us. Father, we love you and we're excited about what you're doing here. We pray you continue to do that and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, church, don't forget this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. This Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in this room, we're having our Ash Wednesday service. And so that's a service that, um, that we'll engage in to kick off this Lent season. And so if you're able, would love to encourage every one of you to be able uh, to be here. So Saturday, uh, sorry, Wednesday night, this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. this room um, to kick off the Lent season. Church, let's stand together and let's worship this morning. Oh, I love you, Lord. 
sufferings. God, we can proclaim that you are good because you've showed us time and time again that you're faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you're a deliverer. So Father, may we believe that more this morning as we worship you. It's in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Doing all right? It's going to be 70 degrees this week. Oh, yes. You're more excited about that. Um, 
I'm glad to be here with you this morning. My name is Garland. A couple weeks ago, I had, uh, we had walked through Daniel chapter one, and I introduced this thing called the way of faithful presence, and we talked about that. And uh, many of you this week have either texted me or sent me gifts, or I've seen you out in uh, the city, and you've said to me, this is the way. And I think most of you are in mocking me. Uh, some of you have been sincere, but either way, I'll take it, all right? I'm happy about it either way. Um, if you're new with us this morning, it's going to be a little different morning, and I'll explain that in just a second. Uh, but just to get us thinking, one of the things that I find fascinating about human culture, not just the kind of the Western culture, but all human cultures, as far back as we can, as we can see looking historically, humans love to tell and hear stories. I mean, we're, we're captivated by stories. We spend so much of our life telling and hearing stories. Like, the me- there's several mediums in the modern world in which we tell and hear these stories. Like, we engage stories through the screen, and we do that by watching a, a, an amazing story ca- captured in a movie or on a, you know, a, a TV series or a, a, a many seasons of a TV show. We watch the story unfold, and we love it. We spend tons of time watching stories on screens. We also, we also hear stories in the written text, as we read the page and we read a good book and read a novel, we interact with a story in that novel or in that, that epic poem or whatever it is. If you look back over history, the written text has been where a lot of people appreciate and interact with stories. And there's another one that we, that we love to do. We love to tell and hear stories verbally. Like if you think about how often when we get together with our friends, we tell the story of that week. We tell the story of that amazing that game where we tell the story of when, that, that story that happened when we were in high school, the story that happened when we did, had our first kid. Whatever the stories are, we love telling and hearing them. Jesus loved to tell stories. One of his favorite teaching methods was to tell stories. Now, here's what's interesting. We have all sorts of different mediums through which we interact with stories. The screen, the written text, and hearing them out loud. And we're captivated by stories. But in the ancient world, like, the world of Jesus in the first century world or before that, most of the people's interaction with stories was through hearing a story out loud. Like just to drop you in historically, it's hard to be precise about this, but in the Roman Empire of Jesus's day, the best experts put the literacy rate, the ability to read a a complex text at around 10 to 15%. So in a room this size, only about 100 of us would be able to read uh, a story in a text. So how did people interact with stories? They were dependent on those stories being told out loud as they heard them. And here's what's really interesting. There's a a new field of biblical scholarship. It's called biblical performance criticism. And this field of scholarship is looking at the stories in the Bible as stories to be told. The writers of these texts, they know that people are gonna primarily interact with them through hearing the story told. And it becomes really fascinating when you appreciate that as you read the biblical text. If you think about it, when you were a kid, the primary way you, heard, you interact with the Bible, if you grew up in a Christian house, was through the stories being told. I mean, we read these stories to our kids in the Jesus Storybook Bible. But then it's almost as if we reach this point where we feel like we graduate from that, and then we only interact with the Bible with like, printed page, Bible in hand, and a pen. But this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna go back to how a lot of these stories were originally appreciated. Like, we're gonna hear this story this morning. If you are, this is your first time to fellowship. It's not what we normally do. And so I, I'm about to be done. And some of you are like, oh, thank you. Yes, this is awesome. He's gonna sit down and be quiet. Um, but what we're gonna do is, this morning, we're gonna hear... The, It is a familiar story, but we want to hear it read to us again, and maybe with fresh eyes see this story for the first time again. Um, Now, to do that, uh, Justin, where are you at? Where is he? Where is he? Come on up here. Uh, This is a friend of ours. His name is Justin. He he goes to church here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and he has a cool job. Uh, His job is he produces a podcast called Holy Ghost Stories, and that podcast is designed to help us, modern people, rehear these stories. And he has a Holy Ghost Stories podcast on Daniel chapter three, which is where we're going 
this morning. So in a minute, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna hear Daniel chapter three, and in Holy Ghost stories, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to download it, listen to it. It's read dramatically, and it's read with music behind it. That's what we're gonna do this morning. So I'm gonna pray. I want you to settle in, and let's engage Daniel chapter three. Ready? Okay, I'm gonna pray. This is gonna be fun. Let me pray. Well, Father, you... You were at work in this story to rescue your people, but also to work in this story to proclaim among the nations that there's a God who rescues. And so enable us, even people that have read the story a bunch, or maybe if we're hearing it for the very first time this morning, by the power of your spirit, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. We might see the rescue creator God. We ask this in your name, amen. Smoke rises over the plain of Dura, gray-black clouds billowing against the blue sky. The fire below churns, glowing red, gobbling up tree after tree, ebony, pine, cypress, rosewood, ash, created by Yahweh, and then chopped, sectioned, split, blackened, consumed by King Nebuchadnezzar. This furnace is a wonder, colossal, overkill, some thought during its recent construction. Why would anyone need a furnace this large? They'll soon find out. Nebuchadnezzar watches over the course of days, weeks, as his workers pour liquid gold from the massive crucible into the giant molds, he smiles as they assemble the image, each section of cast gold joined to the next, more gold filling the edges of the seams until they're invisible. And finally, the mammoth structure is lifted into place, its 90-foot length becoming an awe-inspiring 90-foot height as it rises into the air. It's just nine feet wide. Its proportions make it look even taller. Nebuchadnezzar looks on, satisfied. This should help. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, he's called. King of Babylon, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the universe. All of these titles ascribed to him as ruler of the vast empire of Babylon. Though in time, obscurity will shroud the kings who precede and succeed him, Nebuchadnezzar's name will be remembered for ages to come. And yet, life as emperor is burdensome. The ambitious are drawn to the power. Usurpers, assassins, coups, countless men hungrily eyeing Nebuchadnezzar's throne. Survival requires constant suspicion. Disallows peace. It's as if a, a sword hangs over the throne, suspended by a single hair, threatening to fall at any moment. An untimely death always looming. And then there's what most never consider, the pressure of knowing that you are the most powerful being in the empire, that you hold the keys of life and death. You determine right and wrong. You hold the world together. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. But with enough unity and submission, there can be peace, peace for the empire, peace for the king. And so Nebuchadnezzar smiles as he gazes on the giant 
golden image he's made. This is no mid-level God. This titanic idol is sure to capture the hearts and the minds of those who live out here in the province, away from his impressive palace in the capital, out here in the reaches of the kingdom where the soil is fertile and rebellion easily takes root. They, they will see this shining deity and they will drop to their knees. First the officials, then the citizens, all of them submitted unified and Nebuchadnezzar will sleep well he surveys the image sunlight glinting off the shining gold is it a real God does this nine story tall statue exert actual power do its ears hear do its eyes see can its arms save does it matter Babylon, the monarchy, religion, it's all smoke and mirrors in the end. But if the smoke is thick enough and the mirrors are polished well enough, people believe in magic. I mean, look at it, towering over the landscape. Who would not bow before a god like this? Summon all of them, King Nebuchadnezzar commands. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges and magistrates, and all the other officials, it's time to dedicate this extraordinary image. In a matter of hours, horses are speeding across the kingdom, carrying the announcement to hundreds upon hundreds of government officials. Hananiah's hands tremble as he reads the invitation. What does it say? Asks Mishael, perhaps, as Azariah grabs the scroll and reads aloud. This is it, they realize. Somehow, these three Hebrews have been able to exist within Babylon's pagan government, excel even. Rising through the ranks, each of them promoted again and again as they demonstrated the integrity, work ethic, and generosity taught to them by Yahweh. It's buoyed the spirits of their conquered people. Over these last several years, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah's countrymen have looked to them and to an even more successful Jew in the capital named Daniel as proof of Yahweh's truthfulness when he told the Israelites they should seek the good of the city in which they found themselves exiled because he had plans to prosper them, to give them a future. The Hebrews have started to believe they can be faithful to Yahweh while living in Babylon. But from the looks of this invitation, that belief is about to be tested. Nebuchadnezzar waves from his platform at the thousands gathered before his golden image. His herald stands before the crowd and shouts at the top of his lungs, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then he adds darkly, Whoever does not fall down in worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. At that, the orchestra begins to play. Horns blast full and round like the orange of a setting sun. The cotton softness of flutes drapes itself around the plucking of a hundred lyres. Metal-stringed zithers join the chorus, bringing silvery treble to the warmer mid-tones and lows. Harps then dance their way across the top of the ascending cloud of music. And finally, pipes buzzing and insistent like the horn's tiny brothers and sisters, adding their voices to the din of sound, calling the assembled officials to worship. Worship 
they do. Every knee drops to the ground, a wave of obeisance sweeping across the collected throng. Heads bow enthusiastically before the statue's feet, its blank eyes staring out over the newly faithful. Nebuchadnezzar looks on, satisfied. But there are three heads not bowing alongside the others. And though the king does not notice this anomaly, others do. Nebuchadnezzar nods to his attendants who usher a waiting handful of court astrologers into the throne room. May the king live forever, they declare, bowing zealously. Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyebrows, perhaps signaling for them to get on with why they've requested an audience. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must, must bow down before the image made of gold, and that whoever does not fall down in worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says nothing. One of the astrologers elbows the speaker, maybe urging him on. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. The king's cheeks flush, a vein in his forehead swells. Another astrologer pipes up, they neither, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Court drips with the telltale envy of the overlooked. But Nebuchadnezzar cares nothing about what motivated the disclosure. He is enraged at the thought of such blatant insubordination. And leave it to the Jews to cause trouble. Their strange customs and unbending allegiance to the God they call Yahweh. It was a mistake to think Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah could be trusted in such positions. Clearly, changing their names did not expedite their assimilation the way he hoped it would. Time to force their hand. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are shoved into the throne room to find Nebuchadnezzar's face awash with grave concern. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? The three take a breath, perhaps, to speak, but the king does not wait for a response. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar catches his breath. Surely they will see reason. Surely they will avail themselves of this gracious second chance. Surely they will show his other subjects that they recognize Nebuchadnezzar's word as the ultimate rule of law. If they do not, and and others follow suit. The sword hangs precariously, the hair straining to keep it aloft. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego meet the king's eyes. King Nebuchadnezzar, one of them begins, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. At that, another of them adds, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They do not know it, but this statement will shape the faith of millions. Nebuchadnezzar, throbbing with rage, has the three Hebrews dragged from the room and orders the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. (laughs) 
While the great king of Babylon fumes, the Almighty watches him. Nebuchadnezzar has legislated the worship of a false god, is planning the gruesome murder of three innocent, faithful men, and continues to clutch at power no matter the cost. But as he looks at Nebuchadnezzar, Yahweh's eyes are not full of rage or displeasure, but love. He remembers the day Nebuchadnezzar was born, the day this child he'd painstakingly crafted in its mother's womb took its first breath, saw the light of the sun for the first time, was fawned over by his teary-eyed mother. Yahweh was present that day, present every day since, bringing Nebuchadnezzar rain, peaches, moonlight. But Nebuchadnezzar could not see him. For decades, the king has lived like a man in a haunted room, wondering at strange coincidences, unintelligible whispers in the night, the sense of, of something beyond what he could see and touch, something far different than the images and idols that have surrounded him his entire life. He's been courted by the God of the universe, but he does not know it or has chosen not to see it. It's broken Yahweh's heart, but he will not give up. And the ovation he has planned next may be the one that finally wins Nebuchadnezzar's heart. It will certainly be hard to ignore.
the oaken arms of the strongest men in Nebuchadnezzar's army flex as they lash thick ropes around the hands and feet of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fabric of the Hebrews' robes and trousers flutters in the wind that sweeps across the plain of Dura. Their turbans stand tall atop their heads, undisturbed thanks to their unflinching posture. Even from 25 yards away, the three prisoners can feel the heat of the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, supervising the execution personally, screams for the soldiers to hurry up and throw the criminals into the fire. Obediently, they scramble up to the main opening at the top of the furnace while the king and all those who've come for the dedication look on from a distance through a window in the side of the structure. By this time, the fire is raging at thousands of degrees Fahrenheit, almost out of control. As the soldiers approach the opening with the Israelites, the scalding heat begins melting their metal armor, welding it to their skin. In moments, the enormous Babylonian warriors fall dead, their prisoners firmly tied and unable to steady themselves in the commotion, tumble headlong into the glowing pit. Nebuchadnezzar looks on, satisfied. The soldiers were a loss, but an apt punishment for these mutineers is worth the cost. This episode will serve as a powerful example of the kind of thing that happens to those foolish enough to choose Yahweh. But then, squinting into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar sees, no, it can't be. Silhouetted within the blaze are the figures of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not prone, not writhing in agony upon their knees, walking around. Impossible. Wait, one, two, three. The king leaps to his feet and asks his attendants, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty. Look, Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men walking around in the fire. He continues as if speaking to himself, unbound, unharmed. The fourth looks like, like a son of the gods. What is this? Slowly, his head tilted, eyes trained on the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar moves toward the furnace drawn to the flame like a moth. He thinks back, surely, to Belteshazzar, Daniel, the Israelites called him, coming to him after his dream, the dream his astrologer said no one on earth could interpret and laying bare its meaning. The stunned words he spoke to Daniel in that moment ring now surely in his ears. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. But could the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego do this? And why do this? Why not strike him down for his blasphemy and, and rescue these three before they were led to the furnace? Why be merciful? Why show himself like this? What kind of God would do that? When Nebuchadnezzar cannot come any closer to the furnace, he shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. And somehow, they obey. As the three stride toward the king, the satraps, governors, and loyal advisors crowd around, incredulous, full of wonder. Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps, runs his trembling fingers over their skin, their clothing, not a mark on them, not a hair of their heads singed, their robes untouched. He breathes slowly deeply, not even the smell of fire on them. 
praise, Nebuchadnezzar shouts suddenly, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. Immediately on their heels at this reversal, the, the crowd stares at their king. They trusted him in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. He catches his breath, eyes flicking from side to side as his mind races, and then adds, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Days later, the fires of the furnace finally burn themselves out and the smoke above the Dura plain clears, the sky shining in untainted blue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are promoted and have, in fact, served as an example to Israelites and Babylonians alike, though perhaps not in the way Nebuchadnezzar originally intended. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, he's sleeping differently these last few days. Perhaps he doesn't hold the keys of life and death after all. And if not those, what else? Does he determine right and wrong? Will the world fall apart if he doesn't hold it together? Maybe not. Perhaps that's not all bad. Perhaps these days, the head that wears the crown rests a little easier. What about Yahweh? What about the God who formed that baby all those years ago? The God who even now desires to give Nebuchadnezzar a hope and a future. The Lord of Kings smiles, certainly, as he thinks about the moment Nebuchadnezzar saw him in the furnace and lost his mind. Yahweh tell that story for ages to come. A spectacular act of deliverance, sure, but more than that, an act of, of invitation. Nebuchadnezzar's not there yet, but Yahweh will not give up on him.
story to tell, don't we? Don't we? And these stories were told and retold and told and retold that Yahweh's followers might see we have the better story to tell. There's no other God can save in this way. You can build your life on that. We've been talking about the way of faithful presence, what it looks like to, to live in a culture that that is, doesn't understand or is maybe even hostile or in opposition to what it looks like to follow Yahweh and what it looks like to walk those streets. And if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we said there's three components of this way of faithful presence. The first, and it comes out of Jeremiah 29, we're seeing it all over Daniel, to practically seek the good of the city that you're in. But second, to courageously resist the idols of the city that you're in. And third, to humbly trust that Yahweh is king of the city that you're in. And we're seeing these components on display. But did you see what happened in the story? Justin brought it out for us. Did you see what happened? As these three embody the way, the culture around, even Nebuchadnezzar looks in and goes, There's no God like this. Their God can rescue. When Yahweh's people, Yahweh's followers embody the way, even in a pagan culture, people look in and go, what is it about you guys? And we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have all this T's crossed, his eyes dotted. He doesn't fall on his knees and say, Yahweh alone, give me a Torah scroll. 
He doesn't do that. But he goes, I can't explain it, but there's something different about what y'all have. When, you, when we embody that way, people look in and go, I don't get it. Y'all have poise and courage, but you're kind and gracious. You have poise, trusting that your God can save. We have the better story to tell. Now, this story is set in the 500s B.C., and we're going to see just a handful of centuries later another faithful Hebrew that's been brought before a pagan ruler. And there are going to be people chanting, this one should die. And yet this time, there's no rescue. A few centuries later, another faithful Hebrew will be led up a hill, he'll be laid out on the cross and lifted up. The love of Yahweh to rescue seen in Jesus and his sacrifice for you and for me. The mess of sin, the fire that sin is, the furnace that it is, Jesus will go into it on our behalf. But the story doesn't end there. On the third day, he raised from the, from the dead. It's the sign, the historical sign, Jesus' followers in the room, it's the verdict that sin and death have lost. No other God can save in this way. We have the better story to tell, don't we? And it's something we can build our life on. So we tell it over and over and over again, and we embody it with our lives. So to that end, would you stand and let's sing this song together. Let's proclaim this together. Make today, if you're a Jesus follower, the day, if, you, if it's been rough for you lately or discouraging for you lately, make today the day where you say, I can build my life on that. The love of God in the face of Jesus, the rescue from sin and death. Let's sing this together, church. Worthy of every song we could ever sing And worthy of all the praise we could ever bring And worthy of every breath we could ever bring We live for you
we go we sing this song over each other church let's sing it let's mean it let's encourage it press on on your right. There's communion in there as well. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week, church.